Welcome to Relax Your Grid. I'm your host, Matt Brown. In this episode, I catch up with old-time music icon Bruce Molsky. Bruce was my fiddle teacher back in the day, and I had so much fun reminiscing with him about how we met, nerding out about some of our shared interests, and connecting a bunch of dots. If you want to hear all the music from this show gathered in one convenient place, make sure to check out Relax Your Playlist on Spotify. That's where I assemble each song from every episode in order so that listeners can have an easy way to enjoy just the music uninterrupted. And if you enjoyed doom scrolling on Instagram, please follow the new Relax Your Grid account there for updates and behind the scenes photos and videos as I make each episode. Thanks for tuning in. Here's my interview with Bruce. Bruce Molsky, welcome to Relax Your Grid. That's great to see you, Matt. I have this vivid memory of how you changed my life. And I thought we would just start there because my first bunch of guests have all been people I know as teachers or clients or colleagues. And I remember you giving, I think, a fiddle workshop and a banjo workshop in our house in Westchester, Pennsylvania on West Union Street, followed by a sold out house concert. And I think this was in the 90s, late 90s, maybe. I remember it. I remember it. Yeah. And I remember you brought this delicious bread from a bakery near where you lived. And then our house was full of your music and people so excited. And there was so many people. There were so many people. I couldn't even fit in the living room. I had to sit at the top of the stairs to the second floor to listen to your concert. And that night changed my life. It was the night that I realized, oh, maybe I could be a musician. Like maybe... Wow. There's this guy who's he's not only fiddling and I was only working on violin at the time, but he's playing the fiddle. He's singing. He's playing banjo. He's playing guitar. He's got stories to tell and he's selling out a concert. So I just want to on record. Thank you publicly for changing my life. And I know you've changed the lives of a lot of young musicians. So thank you so much. Well, you're, you're more than welcome. And it brings back a story to me of how I uh first decided I wanted to play music too. It was a totally parallel sort of experience. And I'm honored that that this had that effect on you. But when I was in grade school, uh, Dr. Billy Taylor, the great jazz educator, was running his Jazzmobile program, which he ran for like 40 years. And, uh, and he played for my, for the auditorium in my public school in Bronx. And that was the day I went home and told my mother I wanted to play music because he enabled me. And so after all, after all this time after, you know, to, to know that I inspired you or anybody in the same way that I was inspired back then is really big. That 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 kind of, that really kind of completes a, a chain of something for me. It makes me really happy. Well, so you're going to retire now. What are you going to do next? <laughs> <laughs> really? And it's just the idea that we could all be crammed together in a tight room right now is... Well, it sounds very appealing and not not something we can do right now, sadly. That's so true. And, you know, I, I had the good fortune of seeing you not so long ago, a couple weekends back. You were performing at Rocky Grass in Lyons, Colorado with Tony Trishka and Michael Daves, a great trio of, of musicians. Um, and I was there with my family. And you were so sweet to dedicate a tune to Benton. And <laughs> I had this reminder of of why your career has been so exciting to watch because you played this great music with Tony and with Michael and then at one point Michael said okay Bruce is going to do a solo and they left and they left you on this stage at this bluegrass you know renowned bluegrass festival which usually has about 5,000 people there I think it was fewer because of COVID but um and you with with your fiddle in I think AEA C-sharp played and sang uh, Drunkard's Hiccups and it was, it was as powerful as when Bela Fleck was on the stage the next night with a huge band of bluegrass all-stars. And it was just your voice and your fiddle. And I'm curious, like, when in your trajectory did you start thinking, like, I can, I can do this. I can get on a stage and keep an audience enthralled with maybe just yourself or maybe one or two other collaborators. Wow. That, that, that's a... There's a, diff- a few different angles that I can approach that question with. And first of all, I never set out to be a performer. I, 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 I am a performer. It's what I do. But I don't think of myself as a performer. And, you know, I play music because I'm compelled to do it. I kind of like have no choice. But when I do and there are people in front of me, um, I just want to bring them into the same space that I'm in. 
I'm not there to, I'm not a broadcaster. I'm not clobbering anybody. When I play, um, it's my kind of spiritual connection. And, uh, and that's the thing that I want people to feel. I don't care if they, I mean, yes, I was an ADAC sharp, but I don't care if they hear the fancy licks or the, or the, you know, what I want them to hear is, is, is the feeling and how much I love it. And I also, for those who are really into this music, like you are, and hopefully some of the folks that are listening, um, I want them to hear some of the references because my, my fiddling is about, uh, it's about my own self-expression, but it's also about the people who I learn from, some from recording, some in person. And my playing is built on references, um, from different fiddlers, different bits, different rhythmic things or melodic things or intonation things. They're all the things that I break down and teach because as you know, I do a lot of teaching, but, uh, but you know, just taking those things with respect and kind of cobbling, cobbling them into my own expression and hoping that somebody gets it, you know? And I mean, I, I'm flattered that you would say I have a, a lot of power on stage, <laughs> that that was a very big band of very great musicians that you're comparing it to. But, but, um, but just as far as the human experience, I love people. And this is the best way I know to connect with people. And, uh, and once again, it's just what I want them to feel, you know? Well, you succeed and it's a, it's a beautiful way of connecting. Um, how much music was in your house when you were growing up? Was it on record? Was it on the radio or did your parents make music in the home? Uh, I didn't grow up in a musical family very much. A couple of, a couple of exceptions to that, but in my immediate family, no, uh, my father, uh, would probably, well, he might not have agreed, but every song that he ever tried to sing sounded like blow the man down. He was completely tone deaf. Um, my mother had a very pretty voice, but she was never a studied musician. She was a, a housewife who never graduated high school, but she sang, um, she used to sing Yiddish folk songs around the house and I, and she passed away many, many years ago and I can still hear her voice singing those things. And, and, um, but no, uh, music is something I kind of discovered really outside the house. I have a sister who's much older than me, and and uh, she had she was a big fan of Ella Fitzgerald, so we heard Ella Fitzgerald recordings, and we liked show music. And I grew up listening to Damn Yankees and West Side Story and Gypsy, and I'm I'm showing my age here now, um, and I liked kind of everything except classical music, which I still struggle with. I won't tell. So I know I know guitar was your first instrument, and then in your teenage years, banjo and fiddle would follow. Um, let's jump to the present for a second, just because I've the the press and the social media that I've seen recently tells us that you're working on a guitar record. Can you just give us a little um, preview conceptually of of what we're in for? Well, guitar, as you're, you're right, guitar was my first instrument, and. Um, and I've kind of gone in and out of it. I'm a fingerstyle guitar player. I'm, I'm, you know, I can back up old time tunes with a flat pick, but it's not my main thing. And luckily, I'm married to somebody who does it much better than I do. But uh, I kept coming back to it, and it's it's the kind of thing where I don't feel constrained by a style. I mean, uh, I played old time music exclusively on fiddle and banjo for years because I thought that's what you do to get good at a style. And maybe it is, maybe it's not. But at one point I started collaborating with people in different styles and realized that old time music was my language. And, you know, and then I could speak in a lot of other languages with an old time music accent, if that makes any sense at all. And that's how I've approached all my collaborations with musicians from all over the place. But it kind of led me back into guitar again because I have a set of tools on the guitar that I can apply to a lot of different things. And I, and I think uh, I play my own way on the guitar. And I promised myself for years that I would kind of dig in. And uh, so what I've ended up with is a, a CD of, of music that's drawn from all over the place. And some of it was meant to be on guitar, but a lot of it wasn't. Uh, there are things that I've arranged. And as I mentioned to you before we got on the air, I, I get frustrated because I I create 
arrangements of things that are too complicated for me to play. And then I get angry that I can't play them. But it doesn't stop me from trying. Right. You know, everything, you know, there's no, any musician will tell you that there's no such thing as you don't wake up one morning and you know how to do this really complicated thing. It's all baby steps. And so uh, during COVID and being stuck at home, as so many of us were, I really dug into the guitar again. And finally, I, after promising myself I would do a recording for so many years, um, I'm about halfway through it now. I'm uh, going back in the studio for a second round in this coming Friday, four days from now and five days from now. And, and uh, I'm going to have my one of my two special guests, which is Daryl Anger. He's flying up here and we're gonna do, he's going to play some fiddle and I'm going to play some guitar on a few different pieces. And, and uh, yeah, just see where it takes takes us you know once again it's i'm uh i just want to i want to create something that brings people into a zone i know people don't expect a straight guitar record from me i hope they like it <laughs> you know yeah uh, you know i hope if i like it it means that somebody will like it and and that's about us that's that's it that's the concept i love it well i know i'm gonna like it because as much as your fiddle, I, do you mind if I compliment you one more time? Uh, I'm sitting down. <laughs> uh, as much as your fiddling has been a favorite of mine for years, and between you and Brad Leftwich, I, I don't know who has had more of an impact <laughs> on my old time fiddling. With all of that and with all the records with great fiddling, my all time favorite track you ever recorded is your guitar piece, Brothers and Sisters. Really? And it's just like when that, when I first heard that, and actually, every time since, I'm always surprised by like how it just it transports me to a new place. And this is a recurring theme on this podcast of, of music that that's transportive. And that's that single track. Just every time I hear it, I just like I'm in I'm in a beautiful land. Wow. Thanks. Thanks to you. You're more than welcome. I, it's one of the very few pieces that I've written that I've allowed anybody to hear. <laughs> and, it's, and it's based on a melody uh, that there's a little bit of a backstory to how that thing was created because uh, uh, there's a, uh, an old, he's an old time music fan, I guess, somebody I've known for years on the West Coast, his name is Steve Goldfield. Um, and he pops up at, when I play in the Bay, Bay Area, really great guy. Um, I was in a record sh shop, oh, uh, decades ago. And I used to buy LPs because the covers looked cool. And I, I found this one, it was a little dog-eared, and it was, uh, it had a picture of a, a, a African woman in a sarong with a baby in one arm and a machine gun in the other. And it was called Africa in Revolutionary Music. And it turned out to be mostly uh, um, choral type music, beautiful, beautiful harmony music, um, mostly in languages I couldn't understand. But some of the melodies just, I mean, you can tell when people are singing about things they care about. And this was during very revolutionary times in the 1960s um, in, in the southern part of Africa. And all, all that I can understand the lyrics was how they would sing the name of, of countries and of political, you know, re revolutionary leaders and things like that. But it was really interesting and really compelling to me because it was so powerful. And some of the melodies stuck with me. And over a period of years, it kind of turned into a guitar piece. time before I let anybody do it. I don't write a lot because it takes me too long <laughs> to finish anything. But that was one that kind of stuck. And and it and it turned out I played it at the Freight and Salvage, one of the great folk clubs on the West Coast. And my friend Steve Goldfield was there and he popped up and he said, you know, I was one of the people that produced that record. So uh so we've had that kind of connection ever since. You know, and he gave me a little bit more of the history of how it all came about, and he's probably got about 10 copies in his basement gathering dust, but it's a beautiful record. That is super cool. A fiddle student that I've had, and I think she's taken some of your workshops, Cindy Richardson was asking that I, that I ask you about um, your guitar music, and she mentioned the 
album that you made with David out in, on the West Coast, uh, Can't Stay Here This Away. Oh, for David Bragger, yeah. Yeah, she mentions brothers and sisters and coming home. Um, and she says she'd like to hear a little bit about how Bruce came to play the guitar in such a wonderful way. Um, did you did you study guitar formally or is this something that just you, you got a guitar as a young man and your style has evolved more organically? Uh, I, I had about 10 months of guitar lessons when I was 10. And that's all the music lessons I ever had. Um, besides one fiddle lesson when I started playing and one banjo lesson. And I'm not making that up. But my guitar playing, once again, it's about references. And I had, you know, the 60s uh, when I was a, a young teenager was the end of the kind of the tail end of the folk revival. So there was a lot of that music was on the radio. Um, in New York City, we had WBAI, which before it became a Pacifica station, which still has a lot of independence. It was a totally independent station and people would come on there with these DJs with, you know, piles of LPs or tapes or whatever. And they played just any damn thing. And, and, uh, that was where I got exposed to Joseph Spence who still influences just about everything I play his rhythms. Um, I can't get away from it. And, um, and I was listening to Bob Dylan as we did. And I was listening to Jimi Hendrix and, and Eric Clapton, who turned out to be such a not such a nice guy, but back then, who knew? And uh, yeah, just all the kind of guitar here's John Fahey. And then when I first when I got to college, um, I I ate Leo Kotke's first LP, six and twelve string guitar. I ate it for lunch, breakfast, and dinner. You know, and and uh, and all that stuff just kind of if you if you give it time and don't push yourself, it all just kind of evolves hopefully into your own voice, and that's. That's kind of where my guitar playing comes from. That and, I mean, it could go into some of the technicalities because I have I have certain ways of approaching things. I don't think of chords on the guitar as much as I do moving voices, which lends itself to finger-picking really well. So, you know, where notes collide at any moment in time is a chord. You could probably name it, and it is either right or wrong. If it's wrong, sometimes it's on its way somewhere that's right, if you're lucky. But uh, but I, I hear the strings as separate things, and and uh, that's always been my approach. Well, it's beautiful. How much of your guitar time is in open tunings? Most of it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, I, I like uh, my favorite tuning these days is um, I, I just seem to keep going back to it. it is uh, an open G, open G tuning, but with the with the uh, C C in the bass. Whoa! So, uh, in fact, um, I think I have a guitar next to me, which I'll pick up, and I think it's in that tuning. So, you'd have from the fifth on to the top, but the bottom string is is the four, and it allows you to have a beautiful four chord, a beautiful six minor chord, and a beautiful root chord. And, and working from there. And I've, I've been playing this guitar CD I'm doing, you know, it's a, it's an oddball tuning. I mean, I, I invented it for myself. I'm, I'm sure somebody else invented it too, but, but, uh, but it, uh, probably a third of what's on this new CD is in that tuning. Have you ever taught guitar? Uh, very little. Um, I, I'm on faculty at Berkeley College of Music. We, have, as you know, we have an, an incredible American Roots Music program there, and uh, and Matt Glazer is is our uh, program director, and he's amazing. He's had this great vision to bring music of the early 20th century, kind of into the foreground a little bit, where it was really not there before, and and uh, and so I, I'm I primarily teach fiddle and banjo, but every, every once in a while students come along and they want to learn a little guitar and. And, uh, yeah, um, I met, uh, you might be familiar with Courtney Hartman. She's a wonderful singer, songwriter, guitar player, great bluegrass flat picker. But I saw her at Rocky Grass this weekend. You probably saw her too, a couple of weeks back. And, uh, and we were, and she had been my student at Berkeley and, and we reminded each other that I had taught her, a, a an African fingerstyle piece called Masanga, something that I recorded years ago. 
And uh, and the next time I saw her there in Colorado, she said, oh, yeah, I was back in my hotel room working on it again the other day. She hadn't played it in all those years, you know. That made me feel nice. awesome the the funny funny non-musical story that i have to tell you about courtney while we're on the topic we met years ago when she was touring with delamay but my family we were living up the road from her family so we were in fort collins for a while her family's down in loveland colorado um courtney's sister owns the feed store in loveland colorado really and we bought our two cats well adopted our two cats thanks to i texted courtney and said we need some cats and she said, oh, my sister owns the feed store. So not only is Courtney a wonderful musician and a dear friend, um, we've had lots of fun times together, but she helped our family find, uh, adopt our two cats, Miles Davis Jr. and Thelonious Monk. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Thelonious Monk is still one of my jazz heroes. That's beautiful. Yeah. And speaking of jazz, you're the one who told me about that Eric Dolphy record, right? Like the live Eric Dolphy record in <laughs> Illinois. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. So many tangents. The master of arpeggiation is God bless the child on yeah. on bass clarinet is I still go back to it. Yeah. I got I got a question for you though. Oh sure. Because I'm trying to figure out. Um I know that we met at Jay Unger and Molly Mason's Ashogan about a long time ago. Were you at Mark O'Connor's fiddle camp too? I was, but the one year that you weren't, I think. I was there in ninety nine and I really hoped you would get booked there because I we were already listening to your music at home. There was no one teaching old time that one year. And all of my friends, Brittany Haas and all these people that you you have mentored and, and now played with, like all of my friends, all of my teachers were there in the opposite years. The only person I, well, I actually met some amazing people there. I'm, that's where I met Daryl and I took his Im- improvisation class. I, I met Sarah Caswell there. She was there like studying with Daryl to teach at the at, at the camp. And I met Rachel Barton Pine and years later moved to Chicago and taught Sylvia, her daughter, old time. Right. But you weren't there that one year, even though you were almost always there. Um, okay. I think the first time I studied with you was at Swan and Oa's old time week. All right. Because I, I knew there was somewhere besides Ashokan that we had been together. Okay. Got it. Yeah. I think it was Swan and Oa and Ashokan. And then, and then we connected further and I took the train down and took a lesson with you in person. And then we hosted you for house concerts and the rest is history. I want to circle back to Berkeley because I feel like even before you got that gig as a visiting professor there, um, you were already kind of the emissary from the old time music world to just like the string camp world, like Alistair Fraser's camps, Mark O'Connor's camp that you just mentioned. Um, And so I I feel like of all the people in the old time world, you might have the most visibility to like a young string player who doesn't want to just play classical, wants to try fiddle music and they get to try old time. Chances are they've had a workshop with you or a class with you. And I'm just curious if like what that feels like to be for all these young people, you are their first chance to like ask someone about like what is old time music like how does how would you play soldier's joy or like who was tommy Jarrett? like what what does that feel like it feels like a responsibility matt um because i have students that come and study really hard with me and i i really feel responsible to give them enough of the of the history and the references so that they're not just listening to me and and i think it's uh, to under, to understand uh, uh, what embodies a style of music is to understand a lot of the people that played it. And 
And so uh, when somebody comes to me for lessons, you know, I have a choice. I can just teach them all my stuff and say, hey, play it like this. And sure, they'd all sound more like me. What a tribute to me that would be. That's not what I want, you know. I, I, I want people to, to see the depth and breadth and beauty and all the stuff that I saw when I fell in love with this. I want them to feel all that. I want them to, to for, for, you know, the scene as it exists right now, I want them to, to, when we're all safe and over this damn virus, to jump in the car and go to a Fiddler's Convention and hear everybody play and get that vibe. You know, bef I, I, I always think of, uh, I started going to Fiddler's Conventions in the, in the mid seventies. And I remember that before electronic tuners, we used to have this thing that we called Festival A. You might not remember this, but you know, you'd have all these musicians having, you know, playing tailgate music and on stage and nobody was tuning to anything except what they heard in the air. And there was one kind of conjugal, is that the right word? One kind of, a, that was the result of everything that you heard in the atmosphere. Even the birds were singing a freaking A. And you just tuned to that, and everybody was somehow in, enough in tune with each other. Um, I think that's how, I mean, that's just one small aspect of how music moves from person to person, but to, to but being part of that big picture and feeling like you're part of that big thing, even if it's just playing one common note or playing a set of common tunes or having a common... Uh, uh, social experience. I mean, I, I started playing this music because it was, you know, I wanted to be in the club. I met a lot of people that I liked. They, we shared a common interest. They did this thing, this thing that I thought was really cool and I wanted to do it too. I have the same reason for, for continuing to play the music. I started playing the music because my dad did and he wanted his son to play it. But the reason I chose to, to make it myself, like to continue on the path rather than rebel and play classical music, is I felt like I was starting to get in the club. I remember the first year I went to the Swannanoa gathering, you weren't, it was, I think the year before I went and studied with you there, but Brad left, which was there, Raina Gellert, Kirk Sutphin, Tom Salver, John Herman, Meredith McIntosh, all these people whose albums we listened to in the car driving around all year were there, were teaching. And I got to play in a couple jams with them and I got to hear them tell dirty jokes. And I got to like, just like hang in a way that, you know, as a, as I was 13, 14, as a teenager, like, I feel like we're all desperate for that experience in any way, like whether it's through dance or music or video games or cooking or playing a sport, like any way to feel like we're part of a club and not in a us versus them exclusionary way, but just an inclusive way. And that's 100% why I decided to like sit down and try and learn some of your solo fiddle arrangements right off of your records before we could like have amazing slowdown or, or like go to a workshop or whatever it was. <laughs> right. Like I have vivid memories of like, how did Bruce play Jeff Sturgeon? Well, I'm going to try and figure it out mm -hmm. by listening to the CD over and over again and playing along. And, and I know that you can play it now. love that communal a that you're talking about and it makes me think of i forget which swedish musician told me this and you you've had some great collaborations with with swedish and norwegian musicians that folks should check out on record but i heard a little bit about how in sweden prior to the organ coming about um you know traditional musicians string players would would play all their polskas and and play it with microtonality that is now kind of lauded but isn't as common um, and then the organ would, you know, someone installed an organ in town at the church and all those same musicians might also play in church. And then when, when they would be approached and say like, oh, could you play this Polska for us? And they'd say, do you want it the new way or the old way? Meaning, do you want it the way that's tempered to match the organ? Or do you want it with all the microtonality that, that, you know, they learned it from their, their mentors? You know, teaching has, uh, caused me to kind of deconstruct the music into into elements and one of the most important things to me is intonation and microtonality and uh you know you can 
I, I, we, I have a colleague at, at uh, Berklee College of Music. He's one of the preeminent Arabic musicians in the world. Amazing guy. His name is Simon Shaheen. And uh, we teach on the same floor. And a few years ago, I, I, um, I was playing in my teaching room, just warming up or something. And there's a knock on the door. And it's Simon, who I hadn't met yet. And he introduced himself, and then we chatted. He said, and he, he said, uh, and this, he's got this beautiful Palestinian accent. He says, I have to ask you a question. He said, what? He says, does your music have microtonality? And I said, well, it does. And, and me knowing nothing about Arab, Arabic music, except having heard a little bit of it, we, he, he taught me a lot. And of course, in Arabic music, you have established modes they call maqams. And they contain very specific microtonalities. And uh, in old time music, we just have what we hear. And, you know, Lomax tried to characterize it as one of the elements of his cantometrics thing, which was lim very limited success. But, but ever since I've been, I've been visiting Simone's microtonality class uh, every term and giving a demonstration of old time music and playing old recordings. If you listen to, you know, some of the regional styles, I, I wish I could characterize by their particular microtones. But if you listen to, you know, a great example is, is Bill Stepp, William Hamilton Stepp. If you listen to his Ways of the World or any of, the, any of those things that he recorded, they have all those notes between the cracks in a really um, consistent kind of way, very intentional way. You can't, you know, people like to, to deride old music, old time music for being out of tune and they're wrong. Um, and, and, to me, that's a really important component. You know, it adds, and I, I, I willed myself into playing Ways of the World in a tempered, you know, piano scale, and then playing it the other way as an example to the class. And, and, the, and the piano scale way sounds boring because it doesn't have that tension and release. And, you know, and uh, so I think that's, that's an important thing. In fact, I have a and stop me if I'm running off the road here with this, but I have a, a, a student who I was giving lessons to, still giving lessons to, and I wanted to teach her a tune from the Mississippi fiddler, John Alexander Brown, who I happened, he's one of my favorite fiddlers, real old time. And he plays, um, he plays a tune, uh, the name will come back to me in a second, but, uh, I, she was studying with Simone as well, and so I taught her this tune, and she says, do you know that that tune is in Rast Makam? Rast is one of, the, one of the modes in Arabic music, and so we sent the recording to Simone, and he came back with a laugh, of course, and he said, well, coincidentally or not, it is in Rast Makam, which means that the thirds are flatted a certain way, that the sevenths are altered in a certain way, and it has this really unique kind of compelling color to it you know the same way that tunings change the, the the overtones and the timbre of an instrument those microtonalities change in a really subtle way i mean i, I hope for any non-musicians listening to this podcast that i'm not boring you to tears but for us who play it's important you know well both of the people who listen to this podcast are musicians so both of the people okay <laughs> <laughs> this is not going off the rails this is actually the theme of the podcast the whole relax your grid concept is a chance for, where appropriate, me to talk about um, the value of quantization with guests, or when it when microtonality or stretching and and pushing together beats is is advantageous or just feels right or or is culturally appropriate. Um, and this actually gives me another flashback. This is just um, Matt remembering things Bruce has said. Hour. Huh. Um, I have. It might well have been this workshop where on the day in my living room where you changed my life. But I have a memory of you in a workshop being asked by a participant. She was upset that we were playing the third, that the quote unquote major third, say C sharp in the key of A, but that you were instructing us to play it a little low. And, and she was apoplectic about this. And you brought up this concept of like in many, many folk styles, if not every single folk style, um, there's, a, there's a, a wider range of notes available to us. And, and I remember, I'm paraphrasing, but I remember you saying something like, if 
if William Hamilton's step played his C's in the same place every time, how can that possibly be a mistake? That's intention. That's he's conjuring up something in particular. If, you know, if if I put my finger down on the A string and I I don't like the sound of it, I'm not going to repeat it. But if I like it, I'm going to do it that way every time. And that was your point to her. And it that was a very important thing for me to hear, because up to that point, I was studying classical violin and then learning some old time tunes. And I didn't have a lot of information about microtonality, except that my dad likes in North Indian classical music. And so I knew that in other countries this happened. But I don't think I knew that it happened in America until you, you know, until you had this discussion with the student. Well, I've, I've been kind of just considering it from my own, you know, I'm not a school musician, just from what I hear and talking to people. And I talked to uh, Daryl Anger recently about it. And uh, he feels that there is an acceptable range of frequency for every note, that it's not a set thing. And of course, uh, listen to, well, there's lots of composers that mess with that. But, I, you know, that to me, that's, that's enabling to hear that. I, I, I taught a workshop uh, in Seattle a long, long time ago. And there was a woman stand a fiddle workshop, and there's a woman standing in the back of the room. And uh, at the end of the class, she came up to me and she, and she thanked me and she was very nice. She said, uh, I'm a classical violinist. And my, I came here because my roommate thought I should do it. She says, my roommate plays these recordings of this guy named Tommy Jarrell all the time. And, uh, and I don't like it, she said. And she said, it's, it's, um, she says, the music sounds out of tune to me. And she looked me right in the eye and she said, uh, your music sounds out of tune too, but you do it the same way every time. Am I missing something? You know, and that was the lesson. And I said, well, not anymore. Right. You know, <laughs> you found it. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I can't, I can't make you like it, but at least you know what it is now. So, uh, anyway, that, yeah, uh, all those things, you know, all those aspects in the music, the rhythmic aspects, as you say, pushing and pulling beats, syncopation. And if you want to take those things and use them for a social purpose, this is a really good time to do it because so much of, so many of those things come from certain cultures, which represent the confluence of our American tapestry. And, uh, we are in a period of our history where we better damn well be pay paying attention to social justice and recognizing the contributions of different cultures. And when you talk about microtonality, you can't not include the blues. And when you talk about rhythm, uh, uh, swing, polyrhythm, whatever you want to call it, hemiolas, whatever techno technological term, that's West African. You know, there's a there's a really great video out there that I can't remember the name of now, so nobody's going to be able to find it. But it it uh, talks all about the the this kind of accepted notion that Western art music, classical music, is the pinnacle of musical development, and then everything else is somehow subservient to it. And and it it involves aspects of racism. It involves aspects of like who's in charge at the time and what pleases people the most. And this beautiful video, which it's killing me that I can't remember the name of it, um, dispels all that in a really thoughtful way and very funny. And if I can find the link, I'll send it to you and you can send it to your listeners. <laughs> yeah, I'll post it with the show notes if, if we can come up with it before September 1st. Sure enough. I had the experience, Bruce, of as a classical violin student in the Suzuki method, encountering this mindset that Western art music is the pinnacle of all existence and that everything else is subservient and inferior. And it's been interesting since being a kid in the classical world to now being an adult 
in the rest of the world to see that vernacular music is is being more accepted but also even embraced by the, by the classical teachers and musicians and you know a lot of them are very curious about what's going on um i remember playing some eastern kentucky um cross a fiddle tune for my classical violin teacher as a teenager and his wife came racing in from the other room sure that it had been a duet because she'd never you know she's married to a philadelphia orchestra violinist but she'd never heard a fiddle tuned aeae and like the low notes and the high notes and the ringing like she thought we were playing together and rich was sitting on the couch just listening and i was playing ways of the world or jeff sturgeon or, or one mike in the wilderness um and that was a little bell for me that like maybe eventually there won't be this disparity of like classical music's the greatest, you know, Western classical music. Um, because I feel like there's a lot to learn from each other. And, um, you know, all the teaching you're doing has has a chance to talk to musicians who didn't grow up with old time music. Um, just like, you know, I didn't grow up with, you know, Scandinavian music. And I'm still a beginner and a learner in that world too. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people, there's always going to be a set of people who, think that their music is the best because, or that they think their music is somehow special because that's how they define themselves. And, you know, and it's dangerous, but it's just how we do. Um, I was a by God old time fiddler and I wasn't going to have any of that other stuff back before I kind of grew up and realized there's the rest of the world out there. And, and uh, I think that's something that has really hurt classical music in a way because that that kind of attitude is baked in with a lot of people, I'm sorry to say. Um, but at one point, probably 20 years ago, um, somebody in, with, with influence in the classical community, in the teaching community, must have woken up and, and realized that this was not, a, not the best approach. And there are reasons. I mean, how many great classical composers have, have been inspired by folk melodies. Bartok is the best example I can think of, but I'm sure there's lots of them. I'm, I'm not an expert at that. But but uh, the American String Teachers Association, which was a big organ, is still a big organization of classical teachers, decided that they would have, and what I, I forget what they called it in the beginning. I think it's called an alternate strings program now. I think alternate styles or alternative styles it, it has been used. I don't know if that's currently the term. Yeah, I, I, that term kind of morphed over time, but... but uh, they had kind of a, uh, they had their big conference and everything, and then they had a little sideshow, and and uh, and the sideshow was a little concert consisting of of uh, Jay Unger and Molly Mason, uh, Liz Carroll, uh, a few of myself, Daryl Anger, I can't remember who else, and Natalie Haas was there. I remember this going back a long ways, and uh, and so probably Alistair Fraser was there because they've been playing together for. 22, 23 years now. And uh, and not a lot of people showed up. But it but there was something to it and it took hold. And now it's a very much an accepted part of classical teaching. Um, Natalie, uh, I think the world of her, and I've known her for a long, long time, she came up, she had a dilemma when she was a teenager, which was to, you know, should I pursue... She was a great classical cellist. Should I pursue this, or should I, uh, should I pursue the thing that I'm really digging, just as much or more, which is Scottish music, Scottish folk music, if you will, and of course, you know, Scottish Eastern, East Coast Scottish music is is technically very demanding, and you pretty much have to be a classical violinist to play it right. Um, and she ended up changing teachers, and of course, those of your listeners who are familiar with her know that she's she's a Juilliard graduate who's one of the preeminent folk musicians in the world. So go figure that. Um, I've, I've, I've found more examples of that. Uh, Woody Mann, a great guitar player who teaches at Berkeley, um, who studied from Reverend Gary Davis and and all the all the greats. I think he went to Juilliard too. So, but I'm not giving Juilliard the opportunity to claim credit for for folk music expertise. But just the fact that it does cross over and everything informs everything else, you know, I think that's really important. Yeah. Miles Davis went to Juilliard. Really? The best thing he, th- he thought about it was the music library because he got to listen to Debussy 
And then he dropped out because he got a gig playing with Charlie Parker. Wow. I didn't know that. But Miles had the kind of opportunity and interest to try it as a as a promising young trumpeter. But I think from reading his autobiography, which I highly recommend, especially if you like the word motherfucker, because it's 45 <laughs> times a page. Um, if you don't, maybe get the expurgated version. It's really interesting to, to read Miles kind of um, memories of being in school, like a you know preeminent conservatory in the world, and then realizing that he's really going to the school of Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie. Um, as much as he really dug getting to hear the class, you know, the symphonic music that he didn't get exposed to back home so much. So I want to, I want to ask you about something you said recently, which is you had a time when old time music was, was your lane and you didn't, didn't really want to go out of it. What helped you change your mindset? Because looking at your career up till now, I see so many collaborations um, with people like Daryl, who's played in all these styles with international, you know, superstars on their instrument, folk music wise. Like, was it teaching at Mark O'Connor's camp? Was it was there a specific moment where you were like, oh, I want to play with these people, too? Well, there are there are a couple of a few specific events that kind of got me out of that box. And I can't remember the order of them, but the probably the most powerful one for me was the first professional tour that I ever went on. And as you know, I, I had a grown-up career before I was a musician. I, I worked in building construction. And uh, I got invited uh, on a tour called Fiddles on Fire in 1994. And it was a collection of fiddles, fiddlers from different styles from all over the world. And uh, I was the only one who wasn't a full-time musician at that time. I, I had two weeks of vacation from my day job. And so I couldn't even finish the three-week tour. In fact, Susie, Susie Thompson replaced me at the Scottish border. But, but, uh, but I got to travel with um, Alistair Frazier, who, who's become a dear friend, Kevin Burke, Jean-Francois Vreau is a fantastic French fiddler, uh, Elika Frizzell and Mats Edian were Swedish duo, and, uh, and I've, they've been friends for a thousand years now. And um, K. Shiva Kumar was a uh, South Indian classical violinist who actually was Elika's classical or, or her South Indian violin teacher. He passed away, sadly, a few years ago. Um, and the tour was organized by Alistair Anderson, who's a squeeze box player or a concertina player, a great, great player. And so there was my first big exposure, you know, that, wow, there's all of a sudden, all of a sudden I was like in love with the fiddle and not old time music. And uh, right around that same time, Mick Maloney, uh, was organ would do these big St. Patrick's Day shows. He'd do some in Philly and then some in D.C. And I was living in D.C. at the time. And he invited me to, to collaborate. And all of a sudden, there I was on stage with all these, you know, accordion players and uh, and um, Murray Nicambola, the, the amazing singer from the group Danu, whose name I'm completely destroying, and uh, and all these others, you know. And uh, trying to find my way into a music that was closely enough related. And then I realized that, wow, th this is, you know, leave your ego at the door. Leave your expectations at the door. Just try shit. And, uh, and that one thing led to another. And I fell in love with Scandinavian music. And I've always loved West African music. And, like, why not? You know, why not? Life is short. That's a great, great attitude. I mean, the list, the list of albums and collaborators that you have it's it's funny to me to read it because um some of them are my old time heroes and then all of a sudden it's just like like martin hayes like probably the best irish fiddle player in the world and you know arto yarvala and anon egeland and uh, all these <laughs> ali moeller like all these people but like if i look back to like the first recording i know of of you it's aerobic and the exertions there's earlier ones than that but yeah What's what's earlier? I, that's that's my next question. I think the the very first recording I think I ever was on was a Bob Carlin compilation called Banging and Sawing. Oh, that preceded. I think that was 1984. Aerobic and Exertions was later on. Oh, in and then when was the Bruce and Bob duo record? Take me as I am. Oh God, six. Uh, I know there's Google, but I'm just I'm wondering if you remember. Well, I I have three of the remaining copies on the shelf over there. Um. 
late 80s. I have that on cassette and on CD. I had to rebuy it as a CD. <laughs> yeah, I, I have some cassettes I'd be happy to send you. <laughs> I'll, I'll see if there's room in the garage. They're coming back. I met a banjo player recently, Cody Tenen, great guy. And he said, can I send you my new recording? I said, yeah. And in the mail appears a cassette and a download card. Oh my gosh. I like it. So I guess it's coming back. The nice thing about cassettes is you can fix them. Like you're a mechanical engineer. Like you can just stick your finger in or a pencil in and actually like, you know, fix the tape. It's hard to do that on a vinyl record. Yeah. Uh, You know, I was a car nut when you could, you know, synchronize it two Volkswagen carburetors with it, something physical. I collect fountain pens because I like putting the ink in and actually writing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've got no problem with digital technology, but I like stuff you can see and kind of viscerally understand. I, I get it. I appreciate digital technology because it's allowing us to have this conversation from a thousand miles apart. That's right. projects are you focusing on now? I'm back to playing solo shows, which I was the first thing I ever did. Um, Allison DeGroote and I are doing uh, some duet performance, and we've got, we're in the middle of organizing a bunch of work right now. I've been doing, I have a trio with Tony Trishka and Michael Daves, which you mentioned earlier, and Tony and I do a lot of duet stuff too, because he lives close to here. He's a, he's a dear friend. We have a great time together, and talk about just kind of broadcasting good karma from the stage. We have a really good time doing that. Um, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a project person. I'm always looking for something. So uh, I have this guitar CD coming out. Uh, no other recordings in the works right now, but that could change at any time. You know? when, when do you expect the guitar record to land? Uh, this fall sometime. Oh, great. I'm so excited. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bruce, I am going to end with one more question that one of my Instagram followers um, sent in, and then we'll sign off the public portion and any of my Patreon supporters will get to see Bruce um, on the Patreon feed perform a guitar number for us. So that's a special treat. But before we sign off, Barry Osborne, who works at uh, Swallow Hill Music in Denver, wrote in, I love Bruce's cover of Billy Bragg's Between the Wars. What was the influence of punk rock and or the DIY aesthetic on your career, especially as you were starting out? Well, uh, punk rock came long after I started out, first of all. I think that old time music has more of an influence on punk rock maybe than the other way around because of because both kinds, I, and I'm not an expert at punk, but I like it, but, but uh, because it has kind of a relentless groove, it has a kind of a rhythmic, trough that you fall into if it's if it's happening right um and and so you know i think i know a lot of punk rockers like old time music and i think that's part of the thing you know i've met i've ran into a lot of run into a lot of music traditions and other styles that that say i've never heard any i've never heard anything never heard a kind of music where you play the music over and over and over and over and over and over and over again but they discovered that it takes you to a different place. If you don't listen right, it's monotonous. If you do listen right, you realize that it it morphs and it opens your mind. And it's almost, I mean, to me, it's, it's my meditation. It's my religion, you know. I was a miner. I was a docker. I was a railway man between the wars. I raised a family in times of austerity. We'd sweat at the foundry between the wars. I paid the union, and as times got harder, government to help the working man they brought prosperity down at the armory where arming for peace me boys between the wars i kept the faith i do want to extract one one piece of barry's question which i think you really embody which is like the do-it-yourself aesthetic because you're not 
I don't think of you as someone who has like a huge label and management team behind you. Like you've, you've done a lot of the work and I know Audrey has, has been a huge help and you've worked with agents, but I feel like, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you have put a lot of the energy into this career beyond just what happens on stage and on the records. Like, it seems like you are the driving force behind the business aspect and the the trajectory of your career. It's not a team of, of people at a label or something. That goes back to the reason that I play music to start with, because I love people. And, and I always enjoyed, you know, much as music, the music business can be a little, you know, a little stressful sometimes. I love knowing all the promoters and the presenters. And uh, I love doing the business with them because in, it's inevitable, you know, that you have this business involved in just getting this out there. And uh, I like all that. You know, my previous career, I was a I was a project manager for an engineering firm, which meant, you know, budget schedules and deadlines, all that stuff. And and most people consider that to be awful. I don't mind it. It keeps me in touch with people. And so I like booking the gigs. I like I try to answer all the emails. I don't always succeed. <laughs> but but uh, I just like those relationships. And to me, it's my life is not a. a Life is not just playing as much music as I possibly can. Music is is part of of my an existence that I would like to be organic and inclusive of all the stuff that I find interesting, and that goes from from playing to doing business to traveling to I used to really like to fly, but I'm not so sure about that anymore. Um, to baking bread and 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 some of your listeners are well, all your listeners if they if you like bread and you like roots music, come to Facebook and join my fiddle and dough group. We have about 875 members now and we share recipes and post photos with uh with beautiful baked goods with instruments behind them and it's a lot of fun but you know so it, it, your life should be a a, a common a confluence a combination of all the things that you find are beautiful and they shouldn't cancel each other out so to me it's it's all of the above you know that's a beautiful way to end it bruce molsky you're one of my all-time heroes i so appreciate you doing this it's so good to see you thank you it's great, great to talk to you, Matt.
true love Shady Grove, my darling Shady Grove, my true love I'm going back to Harlan Relax Your Grid is supported by my Patreon community. If you'd like to become a Relax Your Grid superfan for $2 a month, head to patreon.com slash Dream. You'll get to watch an exclusive video of Bruce playing his guitar for us, and I'll send you a Relax Your Grid sticker in the mail. The show is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Matt Brown. Tim Brown provides post-production assistance. Otto Allard is our designer. Max Allard, who is the guest of honor next episode, provided some of the interlude music for this episode. Tune in next time for my conversation with Max about his debut full-length album, and until then, relax your grid. Relax your grid.